In chapter 44, I want to remind you that we've been looking at the life of Joseph. And Joseph is kind of how the book of Genesis is uh, kind of finalized. Joseph is used by God in order to save an entire group of people, as well as the, the surrounding area of Egypt. Uh, the, the whole known world at the time uh, was in a famine. And Joseph, because of his brother's sinfulness and because of the sovereignty of God, had been taken to the land of Egypt, which would later be known as a land of captivity. But in this particular storyline, we see that it's a place where God used the world, and he used one man to provide salvation. And so how in the world can that happen? And yet we see that Joseph's life is very much a Old Testament type of our Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And so this morning in chapter 44, the, the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, they have um, come to the land for food already once, They've left the land, and then they've returned again. And when they return the second time, they bring their brother, Benjamin. And when they bring Benjamin, it's much to the chagrin of Jacob because he doesn't want to lose his other son from his wife, Rachel. He's only got one son left from this wife that he's already lost, and it's Benjamin. And so he he does not want to give up this other son. But what happens is that as they come back, by the instructions of Joseph, although they don't know that he's Joseph, they think that he is the second ruler in all the land, the governor of Egypt by the name of Zapanath Paneah, and I probably butchered that. But that was what he was renamed, and he was dressed like an Egyptian man. And so when they bring Benjamin back, according to his requirement, you won't see me again, you won't be able to get more grain again unless you bring Benjamin. And now they don't know that he just wants to see his brother. They want to see how they have been treating his brother. And so as they come back with Benjamin, they arrive and what he does is he doesn't welcome them as if they are slaves. He doesn't welcome them as if they are spies. He accused them of being spies in previous chapters. But he welcomes them as if they are, in fact, family. Now he doesn't tell them this. He just does what the prodigal son had done to him by his father. He starts slaying an animal for a meal, and he welcomes them into his home. And then as they arrive in his home, he feeds them from his table. You'll remember that from uh, chapter 43. But all of this, and then as they get ready to go back to the land where Jacob their father is with the grain that they've gathered, it starts in chapter 44, verse 1, where it says, He commanded the steward of his house. Joseph commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food. Now that's what they came for, right? As much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. So again, he's going to put the money that they were going to pay for the food back into the sack. He says, also put my cup, this silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. Now, wait a minute, what's going on here? So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. Oh, didn't have my clicker on, that's my bad. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out of the city and they were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, Follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? If you could give me the next slide. Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. And so the steward overtook them. He spoke to them these same words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. Remember, previously they came for grain and he gave them their money back and they got home and they were like, oh no, we didn't pay for the food. What's going to happen to us? He says, when we came back, we brought that money with us plus the money we needed for the next set of grain. 
And then he said, how then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, this is the the brother's confession, whoever sack you find your silver cup in, let him die. Now that seems a little bit harsh, right? Uh, They were very confident that they did not have this silver cup, although they were also confident they didn't have the money on the previous trips. And so he says, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So if we have this cup with us, then kill the person that has it, and we'll all be your slaves. You know, if this thing has happened, then you can do X, Y, and Z to us. And he said, now also... Let it be according to your words. The steward says, I agree. (laughs) I agree to this arrangement. And so he with whom it is found shall be my slave. Not dead, but he'll, he'll be my slave. And then you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. And so the steward searched. He began with the oldest, and he left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, the steward knows which sack that the silver cup is in. Perhaps he's trying to build suspense. He starts with the oldest, and he goes all the way to the youngest. And then he finds it. But I want you to notice the brother's response to this in verse 13. They tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. Now, this is a different response than you would expect from the brothers in the past. In the past, they sold their brother into slavery. This time, when they found that their brother was going to become a slave, they tear their clothes. Now, this isn't like um, Hulk Hogan, where he's got a plastic shirt on and he rips it. Uh, This is a sign of mourning. And many times, they would rip their cloak, and then they would throw dust on their heads, which I don't know about you guys, but that sounds terrible. But they're grieved, they're overwhelmed, they're, they're unhappy. And so they, they, if, even if their emotions don't match up with it, I guess they just want to make it so that even the dust on their head would make them angry and make them sad that they were in this state. But verse 1 through 12, we see here that Joseph is setting them up. He's tricking them. Why is he setting them up? Well, if you remember... It says that he did not reveal his identity to his brothers in order to test them. He wanted to test them and see if they were any different than they were when they sold him 13 years ago into slavery. Now, the brothers return in verse 13. He's going to see a difference. They're not just going to go, well, that's your problem and take off. They're going to go back into town and we'll find out why here shortly. And the question is, will they let Benjamin take the heat for the thing that he did not do? Or will they, in fact, do what they promised their dad? Hey, if I don't bring your youngest son back, then you can kill my sons, Reuben said. And Judah said something very similar. He says, I will protect him with my own life. And if they are kept there, then I will make my life a surety. I will bear the blame for the rest of my life. And so the brothers react, verse 13. They tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. So Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. And he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. Once again, they are humbling themselves before their brother. And this is what Joseph's dream had told him years ago, that they would bow the knee to him as the one that's higher than them, Though at the time that he had the dream, he was actually the youngest. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Now, can Joseph actually practice divination? No, he cannot. Um, He's doing this to play the role of the Egyptian ruler. And many of them had pagan ideas. Uh, They actually even believed that Pharaoh was offspring of the sun in some way. Uh, not the sun, Jesus, but the sun, the thing that's burning in the sky. And so the god Ra. And so they believed that their leaders were in fact gods. And so with this being the case, Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? 
they, they really have no evidence to prove that they didn't steal the cup. They don't have a way to speak against what they're accused of. They don't have any testimony. They don't know how the cup got there. But what's interesting is in the middle of this kind of like begging, like how am I supposed to defend myself? The thing that comes out of Judah's mouth is God has found out the iniquity of your servants. 13 years of bearing shame of something that they actually were guilty of. And now today they're being blamed for something they did not do. And yet still on their conscience is this thing that they know they're guilty of. God has found out our iniquity. We are guilty of an actual iniquity that we never got caught for, and we covered it up thinking that we could cover up our sin. But what you and I know as believers is that we can cover it up for a time, but everything will be found out. Whether we confess it or not, nobody gets away with nothing. Sorry for the double negative. But nobody gets away with anything. And so God has given us a way to deal with this. They are pleading with their master at the time. He says, here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. They don't say, here he is, deal with him as you must. They say, hey, uh, we're here with him. If he's going to be punished, so are we. They're now identifying with their brother. They're, they're interceding for him, but they're also standing in the gap with him. He's not alone in this. And I love this because it shows that their hearts have changed. But he said, verse 17, well, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave and as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now, Joseph is judging righteously. He's kind of like Solomon. He, he has this wisdom, and actually he's drawing from the wisdom that we'll later see in Solomon, because Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15 says this. It says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Joseph is a just judge. Now, He's playing a role here, and he's trying to squeeze his brothers a little bit to see what comes out when they're squeezed. But he's looking at his brothers going, I'm not going to condemn the just. If you guys didn't steal the cup and your brother did, let the iniquity be upon his head. So he's tested his brothers, and guess what? Uh, Judah steps up. When Judah gets squeezed, he steps up and he starts to intercede for his brother. He starts to stand in the gap. He's like a defense attorney. And I love this because in Judah, now, instead of in the past, where he was unwilling to even... You remember the story of Judah and Tamar? And Judah had three sons, and then he was not willing to give his third son to Tamar, uh, even though she was a widow and had no one to provide for her. He was selfish. He was only thinking about how things affected him. I don't want my offspring to die, I'm not willing to give uh, of my offspring. And now we see a totally different Judah. He's willing to give of himself personally. He's willing to put skin in the game. He, he's already told his father, if, if your son is kept in Egypt, then, then I shall bear the shame for that. And here he recounts their journey starting in verse 18. He starts to recount their experience with Joseph. Jo- Judah came near to him, near to Joseph, and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing, and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like that of Pharaoh, who is the highest in all the land. But notice how he approaches Joseph. He approaches him humbly. And interestingly enough, his, his intercession for his brother begins much like Abraham when he's pleading with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. Hey, let your servant speak a word before you, Lord, and don't let your wrath burn against me. But if you would let me speak freely, I'd like to ask, if if there's 50 righteous in the land, will you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if there's only 50 there? And then he starts to bargain, only 40. And then he goes down and he goes, he, he's, it's like an auction. But he's basically interceding for the city because he knows that Lot is there. And here we have Judah as a type of Jesus interceding for his brother. 
He says, my Lord asked his servants, saying, have you a father or a brother? You asked us a question, verse 20, and we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. So I answered honestly. I've been righteous in these dealings. We shouldn't be guilty of anything. Now, when they first told this man that they find out later is Joseph, that they had a brother who was no more, they actually didn't say that he died. The first time they told this story, they said that they had a brother who is no more. And in the Hebrew, it doesn't imply death. It just implies that he's no longer around. Now, in this case, it says that he's dead. So I wonder if when they came back to Egypt, they were like, well, we thought we would see him here. That's why we didn't want to come here in the first place. And he's nowhere to be found. Now, reality is they didn't see him, but he was right in front of his face. Uh, Much like Israel today, most of Israel doesn't see Jesus, even though he came and he was right in front of their faces. And they will one day see him for who he actually is, just like Jacob's brothers or Joseph's brothers. They will see Joseph and go, oh my goodness, you are standing right in front of us the whole time. So verse 21, uh, then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. And so it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we can't go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, surely he is torn to pieces. Because if you remember, that's what the brothers told him. Here's his coat of many colors. Here's his coat with long sleeves. He was the steward over us. I guess a wild animal got him while he was trying to check on us. And so that's all that Jacob knows. He says, so you know that I sent out my son and he did not return to me and I've not seen him ever since. Now, imagine what those words sounded like in the ears of Joseph. I don't know why he didn't break out in tears right then. My dad still thinks about me. My dad longs to see me and I long to see him. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring me down you, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, <clears throat> it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. Now, will Jacob die? Possibly. There's many times that we see, in, even in our history, where a person is so bound up with someone. You've seen this in older couples, uh, maybe a, a husband or a wife. Uh, the wife dies first or the husband dies first, and they've been together for so long that their lives are bound up together. And many times, as a result of that, not very long after that, the spouse dies as well. Uh, they die for a broken heart many times. He says, so your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, Jacob, with sorrow to the grave. Verse 32, for your servant became surety for the lad to my father. And I said this, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Everything in Judah's testimony, and this is a first in his life, he's talking about others and how their well-being affects his well-being. He he actually gets it now. My life is not about me. It's about the people in my life and how I treat them 
and how they're affected by my actions. And so in verse uh, 18 through 34, we see Judas stepping up. He recounts their journey. He intercedes for his younger brother, and he's now willing to take Benjamin's punishment to save his brother and father. He's going to step in and say, let him go free, and I'll take what he deserves. Uh, This is Jesus, right? This is Jesus stepping in and taking the punishment for our sin. And that's the key verse, verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord. He's selling himself to be a slave instead of his brother. And uh, greater love uh, does no one have than that he lay down his life for his brother. And so, chapter 45, Joseph sees his brother's response. He sees specifically Judah's response, and he is moved. He's moved to compassion. He's moved to tears. So, chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out. He said, make everyone go out from me. Now, I think that he said this in Egyptian tongue because his brothers obviously stuck around. And so no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Finally, after two appearances at the second coming, he makes himself very clearly known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. For the first time, they're hearing him weep. So Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? The first words out of his lips, is my father still alive? Am I going to get to see him? But his brothers could not answer him because they were dismayed in his presence. Now that's that's a kind of a simple, kind of a soft word for they were terrified. I don't know about you guys, But I have gotten on the wrong side of my brother before, and he's my younger brother. And when I got on the wrong side of my brother, and then I got found out, I was when he got a little bigger, I was a little bit terrified if he found out what I had done to him. And in this case, it's nothing like that. Because imagine your sibling has something against you, you've sold them into slavery, hard to imagine maybe, and then you find out that he's not only not dead, he's not only not a slave anymore, but now he has a power with snap of his fingers off with your head. He's the the second in command in all of Egypt. At the very least, he could say, no soup for you. No more food for you. No more grain. Uh, You're dead to me, literally. And I'm going to let you do it slowly. He could do that, right? And he would be justified, even by the law. They have wronged him. He has power to say that. But instead, he uses his power to do the following. He says, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? And they were terrified. Verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. Now, this could go either way, right? Get close enough so I can jab you in the kidney, right? That's what younger brothers do, by the way. My brother, if he got any opportunity, he would ram me right in the kidneys when we were wrestling because he didn't have the strength at a younger age. But he says, come near. Now, nearness is a vulnerable position for anybody that has risk. But nearness to the person that's in a right relationship is is wonderful, My wife's reading to me last night about the physiology of a hug. And if you know anything, and you remember anything about just not that long ago when we were told to stay six feet from each other, you start to long for a hug, and you start to be depressed. And all the things that get released in your brain physically, when you get a hug, are not any longer there, and you start jonesing. And that causes... Uh, you know, all kinds of tocins and whatever not, you know, the, 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 the chemicals in your brain to release that give you pleasure and that help you to remember that you're loved and, and all those things. They make you feel loved, although you know you're loved, feeling loved kind of matters. 
And so in this, we see him say something that is, I think, absolutely powerful. He says, please come near to me. He doesn't demand. He doesn't say, come here. He says, please come near to me. It's a gentle way to say, approach me. So they did. They came near. And then he said, I am Joseph. I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. There it is. The unashamed, hurtful truth. The truth can hurt, right? But it needs to be confessed. No doubt the brothers had things they needed to work through. But you know who else did? Joseph. He needed to say something to his enemies. You hurt me. I want to encourage you. If you have somebody that has hurt you, stop telling everybody else about it and tell them. Go to them. They have no opportunity to apologize if you don't approach them directly. Now they do, no doubt. They should know. They should know how I feel. And, and they might, but they also might not. Don't assume that they know how you feel. You're holding them captive to something that they may not know about. Now, in this case, I think these guys knew. And Joseph takes the first step. He says, come near to me. And then he says, you wronged me. And then he, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, you wronged me and I'm over it. He, he says, come near to me. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, that was then. This is now. They should write a song about that. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Don't be angry. Don't hold it against yourselves. Guess what? There's good news. God sent me before you to preserve life. And he's going to go on and on with this theme. And he's going to go, you meant me harm but God meant good, not only for me, but also for you. For these two years, the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve. He sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Sound like Jesus? And so, now it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, an advisor, an elder, and a lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. So, confession leads to deliverance. What you don't see, maybe, in the testimony that Judah gave is he confesses. Now, he doesn't come out and say, hey, we sold you. What he does is he comes out and says, the Lord has found out our iniquity. And once he says that, Joseph sees they're convicted. And I think sometimes we're looking for people to confess every minute detail. But I think what the Lord does many times is he takes our half-hearted confession and he helps us fully develop it. I don't know about you guys, but I have a past that if I put it on the screen up there, you would cringe. And I would cringe. And some of you do too. But the reality is, when I came to Christ, I didn't confess all of it. I confessed the part I was ready to confess. And he took that little flicker of flame, and then he breathed life into it. He made the flame bigger. And as he's made it bigger, I've confessed bigger things that I didn't confess from the past, because now, okay, he forgave me that. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal some more. Now, he knew all of it. He died for all of it. He forgave all of it when I just asked him for forgiveness of the little piece. But as I grow deeper in my walk with him, it's caused me to understand more and more fully how much he truly has forgiven me of. And then I become more bold when I enter into his presence and go, oh Lord, I'm sorry I've held on to this thing. Forgive me. And then guess what? He does it all over again. He forgives me. And then it's, there's this joy that flows from that progressive confession. And then what happens is that confession leads to deliverance from that thing. I'm no longer carrying it around like a backpack of rocks. And then reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled to somebody? 
to have that dividing wall of separation, my sin, taken down, and then we're brought back into fellowship. And then what happens is what comes from that comes honest praise, honest confession, honest deliverance, God's reconciling me to himself, and then from that comes praise that's real. If you want to be a real worshiper, dig deep and say, Lord, search me out and know me. See if there be any wicked way in me, and then practice confessing it every time it comes up. Then the enemy can't use it against you, and then you realize how much God loves you all over again. And what happens is what happened to David in Psalm 51. David's confessing the sin that he held for a time when he sinned against uh, the Lord by taking Bathsheba as his wife uh, physically uh, while she was married uh, to someone else. And in Psalm 51, as he's working through his confession, in verse 14, he cries out to the Lord and he says, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. You won't be self-righteous anymore. You'll confess and you'll celebrate God's righteousness. He says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. Many times our lips won't show forth God's praise in our life because we haven't confessed our own sin. We don't realize how, what a gift his righteousness is. And so we, we're, we're stunted in our praise because we've not gone through confession first. And so he says in verse 16, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You don't delight in burnt offering. He says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, humility and brokenness, realizing I'm broken and that God's not. He says, these, O God, you will not despise. And that's what Joseph is responding to. Joseph is responding to his brother's brokenness. He goes, oh, good, they get it. I forgive you guys. And then I want to tell you something. Not only do I forgive you, but I'm praising God for what you did. When you can praise God for what people have done to you, you've been delivered. You can now celebrate. You can now truly experience God's salvation. And then, look at this, they no longer need to fear Joseph. When you've been forgiven, when you've confessed your sin, when you've been reconciled to God, there's no longer a need to fear. Being close to God is now a joy and not a scary thing. It is a Scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Unless, of course, you come through the shed blood of Jesus. And so in Romans chapter 8, that's where we get this idea. Where Paul writes, Romans 8, chapter one, 8 verse 1. He says, There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who have come near, to those who have been brought near. They've been covered by his blood. He says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh, but now according to the Spirit. And turn a little bit to the right, to Colossians. First, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. That was for me, not for you guys. Still learning that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. Start in verse 19. It says, It pleased the Father that in Jesus all of the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile, there's that word again, all things to himself, by Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, think of that, Joseph's brothers were alienated from him and didn't want to get anywhere near him because of their wicked works. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, and Joseph's life no doubt had to feel like death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. 
You're in my sight now, guys. Come near. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So they've been brought near. So when we come, when they came to Joseph, they left feeling like they just had an entire burden lifted. And now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We've been, these brothers have been reconciled to their brother Joseph. They've been forgiven. They've experienced forgiveness. They've been made one with him again. And now they get to come near and they're not afraid anymore. They get to enter in fully. The old things, everything that they did to him in the past, they've been forgiven. They've been dealt with. They're no longer counted against them. And this is how we are in Christ. So now what we have is this opportunity to come near to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, not because we're righteous, but because he is, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, as is the manner of some, but instead exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day of Christ or his return approaching. So all that is kind of a a large rabbit trail, but we've been reconciled. And so Joseph's family's been reconciled. And in verse 9 in chapter 45, it continues and it says, Hurry and go to my father. This is Joseph's command. And say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not wait. Don't tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near to me, and you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. And so you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers, and he wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. And so Joseph makes plans to send his brothers to bring his father. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come, so it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan, bring your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. This is Joseph's plan to bring the rest of the family back, which is interesting because Jesus came, he reconciled us, and then he said, I want you to go ye therefore, and I'm going to give you gifts, and I'm going to give you my authority and my word, 
And I'm going to send you to gather all those who will be brought to Egypt for their salvation. Now, in this, they're talking about physical salvation from a famine, right? They're coming to the source of bread, all this grain that's been gathered up by Joseph. And yet what we have is the same. Jesus even foreshadowed it when he took five loaves and he multiplied them. And then he said, come eat. And then he used his apostles to go and hand out what? Bread. To give physical salvation to the people that were hungry. And so they were famished and God feeds his people. Verse 19, now you are commanded to do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh. He gave them provisions for their journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, the favored son, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and food for his father for the journey. And so he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. And so verse 16 through 24, we see Joseph made a plan and then Pharaoh approved of the plan because Joseph's plan doesn't matter if he doesn't have the authority of the king of the land. But then in chapter 45, verse 21 through 28, we're seeing Jacob's response to the good news. They're going with good news. They're going to Jacob. They're going to bring him back into the land, but he has to be willing to go, right? And so Joseph and Pharaoh, we see this from, sorry, there's a fly up here. Shoe fly, don't bother me. Up to verse 20, we see all of a sudden there's this long discourse about the carts and then the goods of the land as gifts to send back to Jacob. Well, I believe that this is an Old Testament teaching where God's saying, I'm going to take the people that I've reconciled, I'm going to send them to the people that are in the world, I'm going to give them gifts, and we would see them in 1 Corinthians in chapter 12 and verse 14, it's going to give us gifts. And by the way, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I believe, biblically are still active today. And the purpose of those gifts is to encourage those who would see them and hear a word of knowledge or hear a word uh, and all the gifts that are in there, those gifts don't save people. There are denominations that teach that when you become saved, you will have the gift of tongues. And if you don't, you're not saved. And I don't believe that everybody has the gift because Paul writes, if you have the gift. And so the word if implies that not everybody does. But my point is, is that God gives gifts to his children to serve and to be witnesses in the world. And the purpose of those gifts is not to save. If you read the New Testament in in the gospel accounts, many times people are physically healed, but they're not saved by seeing healing. Multitudes walked away from healings and they didn't believe. But the gifts are there so that those who see the gifts will recognize that Jesus is alive and still working. They're evidence that they've been sent by Jesus. Here it's evidence that to Jacob that Joseph was in fact the one that sent them to their father. And so verse 21 says, The sons did so. And Joseph gave them carts and according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. And he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of... I already read that. I already read that. But I wanted to point out in here where it says in verse 24, so he sent his brothers away, they departed, and he said to them, see that you do not become troubled along the way. And in another translation, what it says is, don't quarrel while you go. Don't argue amongst yourselves as you travel. Jesus said we would be known, Christians, by our love for one another, not how much we argue doctrine with one another. He said, so don't argue along the way. So 
while he's telling them to go and he's convincing Jacob, we see in verse 25, they went up out of Egypt. They came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. They told him saying, hey, guess what? You know, it's been 13 years. We told you he was killed. But Joseph is still alive. And he's the governor of all Egypt. And it says here, Jacob's heart stood still. He was in awe because he did not believe them. But notice this, when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, was revived. And then Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This had to be balm to his soul. And so we're going to take communion this morning. And I want to try to tie it in a little bit. We've seen reconciliation because of what Joseph did in his work of intercession, his work of forgiveness, his work of providing bread for a famished people. But communion is just this. It's to give thanks. Uh, Some high church places call it the Eucharist. But the word means to give thanks. To give thanks for what? (laughs) We've been reconciled to God. It cost him to forgive us. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, sins are forgiven and the guilt of sin is removed through turning from them and believing Jesus Christ is enough. Communion is sharing a meal with God, but we're also doing it together with each other. We're joint heirs in this salvation. We eat at the same table. In Old Testament times, if they would eat a loaf of bread with you, your bodies to them become one. It's a joining together in an experience. Jesus gave himself so that we could all be partakers of one loaf. We're all cleansed by Christ's blood. The only way to remove our sin and our guilt, we celebrate that. Uh, We don't any longer have to walk in shame. We've been completely made fresh and new. We're new creations. And as we eat together, we remember that we are one body and we are given one spirit. Our king has given us gifts, much like Joseph and the Pharaoh gave gifts to the brothers. And he calls us friends instead of slaves. He even feeds us from his table. We are already part of God's kingdom. And here's where I want to stop. We're already part of God's kingdom. If you are in Christ today, you are already in God's kingdom. And this meal doesn't reflect the king's meal, does it? We're all going to go to lunch afterwards. We're going to drink a little juice. We're going to eat the bread and remember Christ's body. But there will come a time, a real time, that we will all, who are in Christ, walk into the heavenlies, be taken up to be in his presence, and we will celebrate with a king's meal. We will one day enter into the fullness of what he has promised. This is just a foretaste. This is just a reminder. But until then, we celebrate as if we're already there because we are already citizens by right, by birth. We're not foreigners. We've been brought near. And so we remember, while we take communion this morning, in chapter 45, verse 7, where Joseph said this. I want to read it a different way. Verse 7, God sent Jesus before you and I to preserve a posterity for us in the earth, and to save our lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you and your sin who sent Jesus to the cross, but it was God for you to forgive your sin. And it's hard to reconcile those two things, but God chose to, in advance, to provide salvation just because he cannot do any other. He did it, by the way, before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This was not plan B. He knew what we would do when he made us. And he has made us. He has made us influencers in the world. He's given us positions of authority and influence in this creation we live in. And one day, with Jesus, we will be rulers throughout all of heaven. We'll be rulers in a real kingdom joint heirs. And so until then, 
we take communion to remember. And maybe today, while we take communion, uh, you'll be those who, uh, uh, band, if you want to come up, they're going to lead us in a song. And as they lead us in a song, our ushers are going to come up, they're going to hand out communion. If you are in Christ, you are welcome to the table. But maybe, just maybe, you're someone who comes here today and you're still angry and grieved about the things that you've done in the past. And you're like, I couldn't possibly be saved. I couldn't possibly be forgiven. This is for someone else. But I would say to you uh, that you can be forgiven and that it was not you who did it, but it's Christ who has already provided a way that you can come near. And I would ask you this morning that you'd pray this with me. Father, I come to you in fear and trembling because I have sin against you. I admit that my sin is grievous and I'm embarrassed at it. I'm convicted of it. I know that I don't deserve the best or even the least of your kindness. But I come to you in faith this morning because the scripture we read uh, has said that Joseph called for his enemies to come near. So I'm an enemy of yours, Lord, but I want it to be accepted in the beloved because of what you've done. So if there's anybody here today that wants to pray this, Lord, I come to you with all of my guilt and shame and ask that you forgive me of it. I'm sorry, and I want to be forgiven, and I want to be this new creation we've talked about. I want to be welcome at your table. So Father, Anybody who's prayed that this morning, I pray that you'd bless them and give them the faith to confess those things out loud and to tell somebody this morning, I came to Jesus and I'm his now. So as we get ready to take communion this morning, Father, um, as we spend this time with you in song and as we get the elements and we get ready to take it in between the songs. Lord, I I pray that you administer to each one of our hearts. Maybe there's some of us here today that have confessed things to you, but there's still stuff that we're carrying around. Would you help us to let it go and to give it to you and confess it to you and have our joy restored and our praise unleashed? In Jesus' name, amen.